Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com What's going on, everybody? We've got a great show for you today. As always, brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. You can go to Black Rifle Coffee, put in the code BLASTOFF25. You will get 25% off your first month in the coffee club and lots of other items on the site. And uh, my favorite right now is the Liberty Roast. It's so good, man. I love that. So if they still have that, check that out. Today's guest is pro bass fisherman Brent Ayler. And Brent and I met at a Mercury event a long time ago. I thought he was really cool. Uh, We got along great. He's a a bass fisherman from California. And recently he's been putting on uh, a lot of stuff on his social media about diet and fitness and how that's affected his fishing. So I thought that would be interesting. But we have a great conversation about diet and fitness. And then we talk a lot about bass fishing, his experience on the different tours, what he's been able to accomplish, who he's fished up against. And I hope you'll stick around for this great conversation with Mercury Pro, Powerpole Pro, Daiwa Pro, and many other, Lucky Craft, he's with Lucky Craft, uh, Brent Ayler. Hey everyone, I am Brent Ayler, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. Brent, what's going on? How are you, man? Doing great. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time. We're on the Mercury Pro team together. We're on the Daiwa Pro team together, probably a couple others. And uh, really always always wanted to, to have you on the podcast. You're a pro bass fisherman, obviously doing extremely well in that. Been doing it for how long? How long have you been doing that? Oh, man. I've been doing it full time now. I think I've done 16 full seasons. Wow. That's yeah, incredible. We're going to get into it. Yeah, I know. I'm sure it is. And uh, your home's California? Yes, I live in Redlands, California. I'm kind of in between Los Angeles and Palm Springs. Okay, very cool. Well, I'm very interested to see how this all got started. But first, we're going to put you on the hot seat. We got one minute. It's going to take one minute. We're going to see how many of these questions that we can get through. Um, And uh, we'll, we'll start at 2.20 on my clock here, which is... In just a second here. So I'm just going to run through these questions. You go through them as fast as you can. Are you ready? I'm ready. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Text or call? Text. Drive or fly? Drive. East coast or west coast? West coast. Large mouth or small mouth? Large mouth. Spinner bait caster? Uh, Spinner bait or spinner uh, spin casting. Spin. Whoa. Okay. Cool. Jeez. Favorite state to bass fish? Texas. Winter Olympics or summer Olympics? Winter for sure. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Mountain bike or snowboard? Mountain bike for sure. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Coffee, tea, or energy drink? Coffee, 100%. Audio book, Kindle, or paper? Uh, audio. Movie that makes you laugh? Uh, old school? <laughs> Me too. What do you listen to on long drives? Uh, Joe Rogan podcasts. Country rock or rap? Uh, country and rap. Or sorry, Dang. country rap, I guess. I'm not a rock guy. 
Okay. Okay. I like it. You made it through 16. That's, that's probably a new record. I, I shortened a couple of them. All right. So these are the questions that we're starting to ask everybody. Uh, the best advice you've ever been given, if you can remember that. Um, you know, my dad is always big on, uh, he calls it the six P's, um, proper preparation prevents piss poor performance. And I, you know, I'm one of those kids that, you know, my dad was a, a tough guy and I, I don't like to give him credit, but I mean, he was right on a lot of things. So, you know, being prepared for stuff and over preparing is a big deal. I use that a lot in, uh, in fishing, you know, it comes down to hoping for the best, but preparing for the worst, you know, you always have to be prepared. That's cool. And the six P's will definitely come in handy in fishing for sure. That's my, that's my, uh, experience anyway. All right. Three non-negotiables that you have in your life. Um, oh man, non-negotiables. Uh, I've never been asked that question. Um, I've never really, you know, thought about that. Um, you know, family, my, my wife, Kelly and my son, Ollie, I mean, they're, they're a huge part of my life. We have a great little family, just the one son, but, uh, you know, they're, they're a big deal. So that's something that I would never compromise. Okay. Awesome. That's one. What about two others? <laughs> two others. Um, you know, in uh, non-negotiables, man. Um, right now, diet. You know, I'm I'm really big on on a healthy diet. Uh, I my cheating on my diet is I, I've had you know rice kind of here and there. I've had mashed potatoes here and there. When I say here and there, I, probably in the last year it's been less than six bowls of rice and probably three bowls of mashed potatoes. Wow. So right now, uh, I've been really strict on my diet. I'm full gas on everything. If, if I, you know, I'm not the person that can kind of, you know, just cheat a little bit here and there. Once I start cheating, it's full gas. So I'm kind of full mm -hmm. gas in every direction. So diet's one. And then, uh, you know, exercise is another one right now. I, I do push-ups every day. Um, you know, even days where if I go to the gym and I'm going to do a chest exercise, I still do push-ups at my house. So uh, diet's one, exercise is the other right now. That's fantastic. Um, and another reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast, obviously. But, um, you know, in, in the world of, of fishing, not everybody takes as good a care of themselves as, as that. Um, is, the, is the diet thing that you're doing over the last couple of years, is that out of necessity? I mean, you've always been kind of a fit, fit guy in, from when I've known you. Um, but it seems like in the last couple of years, you've really taken it to another, another level. Is it helping your performance on the water? Like, is that one of the things that's going on? It, it does for sure. It helps you in every aspect of life. You know, it's, if, if you're, if you're physically fatigued, you're going to be mentally fatigued. So, um, I think that if you're physically fit, you're going to make better decisions. You know, you're going to have a little bit more mental clarity than, you know, if I'm telling you, if you're physically fatigued, you can't make the right decisions. And, you know, fishing, it's just fishing. It's really not that big of a deal. I look at some of the guys that, beat me daily or, or will beat me out there. And I mean, they couldn't even walk a mile, let alone, you know, jog and do push-ups. So, um, you know, it's not the end all be all to be a good fisherman, but for me, I feel like it, it helps give me that drive to, you know, hopefully compete against the guys. So, um, you know, I just, I felt stronger this season than I have in any other season. Um, and you know, it's diet and exercise is that reason why. Tell me about your, um, your annual schedule, like how many days are you on the road? What, what, what's the, you know, for an elite bass guy, what, which tours are you doing for an elite bass guy? What is, 
you know, like we were just talking about like the physical requirements of, of being able to do this for 16 seasons, just, just for people that kind of are familiar with bass fishing, but not, not intimately. What does that look like? You know, it's, it's, uh, so being from the West coast from California, um, I start the season by driving from California to my first event <laughs> and almost every season we'll start in Florida because in February, that is the start of the season. So you can't really go to certain parts of the country in February, you know, so there's a really good chance you're going to have good weather in Florida. So I'll drive from my house in Southern California to Florida. I'll fish that event. And then I will drive to the next event or drive somewhere in between, leave the boat and truck, and then I'll fly home and then fly back and start that, that, you know, whole scenario over again. Uh, each tournament is about 10 days long from when I fly out, uh, I usually get there, you know, I fly out two days prior to practice starting. So I have one day to, uh, get all my tackle ready, get the boat ready, uh, you know, gas up the boat, go to the market, get groceries for the week. I'll also meal prep, uh, on that day before. And then we have two days of practice that we're allowed to scout around the lake. So, um, I try to maximize my time. You know, I, I know guys out there that, like, let's say if, if it's lines in in the morning at 7 a.m., they won't get on the water until 7 a.m. And it'll be lines out at 4 p.m., meaning we can't, you know, that's when it's the stop time. Mm-hmm. They'll stop fishing at 4 because they think that if they find anything after 4 o'clock, that it's not going to help them later, you know, in the tournament. So I don't understand why guys do that. You know, guys come in early, they hang out, they drink, and they eat, and they do the whole thing. And for me, it's dark to dark. I am on the water when we are allowed to be on the water, and I'm off the water when we are supposed to be off the water. I'm so you can't fish, but you can map, map the lake, and you can you can look around and do other things like that? What is that what the rules say? Uh, we're allowed to fish. Um, so we go out and fish, and we try to find where we want to you know spend our time in the tournament. But the from seven to four, right? What's that? Seven to four? Seven to four? Uh, sorry. In the tournament, it's seven to four, meaning that oh. you know we'll take off at 6.30, uh, it's a new format. So I fish major league fishing, uh, the Bass Pro Tour. And the way we have it is see, in the past, most of our tournaments is they call your name, you run out and you're on the clock right then and there. So if you wanted to stop and fish right there at takeoff, you could do that. If you're going to run an hour and a half, you know, 70, 80 miles to get to your spot, you know, you've wasted 70 or 80 miles of fishing time to get there. Right. Um, but the way it works in our format now we have a 30 minute runaround period at the start of the day. So we take off, they call our numbers. They call my name at seven 30, you know, based in uh, on the floor, it's a random draw. So boat number one, let's say if I'm boat number one, I'm the first guy they call and I take off and I run to where I want to fish, but I have 30 minutes. So if I'm only running five minutes, that means I sit there and wait for 25 minutes before I can start fishing. Cause at eight o'clock is when, or seven o'clock, whatever the time, you know, is, that is lines in and i have mm-hmm. an official in the boat that has a official scoreboard which is an ipad with the times our weights everything so uh, we'll run out to a spot and i'll sit there and wait and he says you know okay two minutes one minute 30 seconds 15 and he'll give me a countdown 10 9 8 and then as lines went in and i start fishing and we have three two and a half hour periods and in between those periods we have a 15 minute period break and the reason why they do this stuff is that they have 10 cameras on 10 camera boats throughout the lake and they run those cameras to different people. So if I didn't start with a camera 
if I'm doing well in the tournament, they'll bring out a cameraman to me. So I might start the day with the camera uh, or not start the day. And if I start doing well, whoop, here comes a boat and they bring a cameraman to me. Next thing I know, I'm on live, you know, web and app and everything of me fishing in the actual tournament. Mm. And we do that throughout the day. We get to the end of the period, end of the third period. And it's the same thing. You have two minutes left, one minute, 30 seconds, 10, nine, eight whoop, lines out, no longer fishing. That's usually at four o'clock. So, um, the neat thing about that is that, you know, if you're fishing a long ways away, I mean, I've done it where I've run a hundred miles in one direction and you have to worry about that run period coming back. So if you're running a hundred miles, you're only going to fish for probably two or three hours. Mm -hmm. The whole time you're fishing, you are worried about, well, how bad is that wind? Is it going to take me longer to get home? You never know. And you can't speed up. If you're going a hundred miles, there's no way you're going to get there faster than you're going to get there. There's nothing you can do. The boat's only going to go so fast. Uh, I have a Ranger uh, boat with a 250 Mercury on it and it tops out at 68, 70 miles an hour. So there's no way I can get there faster. And believe me, I try. There's so many times where I've, you know, worried I was going to be late and I have a hot foot. TH Marine makes one of those hot foot. So it's like driving a car. And I push that thing down as hard as I possibly can, thinking that I'm going to get going a little faster. And <laughs> <laughs> you never do. But, um, you know, so our format is different now. When it's lines out, it's lines out. I can cruise in as, as fast or as slow as I want. You know, if it's rough, huh. I can take my time. So it's, it's kind of a neat format. The other thing, too, is that we don't have weigh-ins anymore. We don't keep the fish in the boat, keep them alive, you know, release the smaller ones when we catch bigger ones. This is a catch, weigh, and release. So that's why that official is there. I catch a fish, he weighs it, tells me the weight, then he punches it into the scoreboard. So I know exactly where I'm at at all times of the day. You know, I could be hmm. in last place, I could be in first place, and I know that's the actual leaderboard. It's not a uh, estimated, you know, it's it's a true leaderboard. So wow. you know at all and times so where you stand in the tournament. You can catch as many fish and be credited for as many fish as, as possible in, in, in this format, right? Uh, it used to be. That's how we started. Um, every fish counted. Uh, we have gone away from that now. We are on a five fish limit. Um, so we're only counted on our five heaviest, but we still catch, weigh, and release. And so then that, that iPad will just shuffle those for you and call call out the ones and, and automatically you, you don't have to select. Like that was... That was a big difference in, you know, my experience with this is just the redfish tournaments. We, we did the redfish tournaments. It was two fish limit, not a five fish limit, mm -hmm. but still you would have to call and you could get a, you could get an inaccurate weight or you could, you know, I don't know. We had like a balance beam, mm -hmm. right? Which I yeah. found was the easiest because it didn't, I didn't want to do math out there. I just want to see which <laughs> one was heavier than the other. And so I found that the balance beam, you know, really was, was the best for us, um, but that had to really change strategy. Like when you change into this other format from a, now how many years did you do a previous format or a previous tour before you did MLF? So I did uh, 10 years at FLW, which was all weigh-ins. And then I did, I think five, four or five years with the Bass Elites, Bassmaster. Mm -hmm. And then now I think I'm on my fifth season with uh, Major League Fishing. So um, so it's interesting to think about, like, I wonder which one you like best and why. Um, it's hard to say, you know, the, the, there's things I like about all the different, uh, uh, the different formats. So, 
Um, you know, I like the fact that at the end of the day, I don't have to rush to come in, meaning that, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I don't have to worry about that safety issue too. running time I mean, safety. Yeah. It's everything, you know, and you beat up your equipment, you know, and I'm, I'm an, I, the, the biggest run I did is I had a FLW tournament out of Sandusky, Ohio, and I was running all the way up to the North end of Lake St. Clair, which meant that I was on the South end of Lake Erie and I had to run across Lake Erie, get into the Detroit river, run up the Detroit river, get into Lake St. Clair. So from, uh, from Sandusky to the mouth of the Detroit river was 55 miles. I want to say it's 30 miles from there to St. Clair. And then I was running another 20, 30 miles once I got into St. Clair. So Were you it going was over the rocks? miles, you know, going where I was going and I had to be back at a certain time. So, you know, I didn't, it was tough to judge. Now, when you're running across Lake Erie, if that wind comes up, you know, you can be instantly in four or five footers. And mm -hmm. when you're in a little flat bottom bass boat, it, it really slows you down. It can beat you up. So it just beats up your equipment. It beats up your body. I mean, I was so sore after that for running because, I mean, I'd run for two and a half hours each way just to go and fish for two hours and turn around and come back two and a half hours, you know, it was miserable. Two and a half hours wide open or as fast as you could possibly go with the conditions, right? Like, Oh yeah. As fast <laughs> as you could go. And the, the final day, uh, I came back and when I made that turn in Lake Erie, heading back to, uh, Sandusky at that point, it was 55 miles from there across, you know, I say open ocean. I mean, it's across well, Lake Erie. It looks like the ocean. I mean, when you see that on TV, I've never been on the Great Lakes, but you look at that, and it looks like the ocean. It does. I mean, you can't rough. see land in any direction. So right. you know, you're out there in the middle of nowhere, and that wind was 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 running, and I, I thought I had a chance at making the final day cut. And so I pushed it even more. I thought it was going to be late, and I pushed it and pushed I pushed that boat to the limits. And I thought I was going to be late. I actually made it in with about 20 minutes to spare. But um, when I made that turn – out of the Detroit river, just as I was getting into Lake Erie, you know, I was 50 miles away and I told myself I was going to be late. You know, it was just, and there's nothing you can do about it. And it was just, it was a miserable ride. I mean, my body hurt for days, just beating myself up, running into it. Yeah. You're so, used to it. Imagine what the cameraman felt like. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Fortunately, <laughs> I didn't have a cameraman in the boat, but oh, good. Oh, it would have been miserable if there was, he would have been, oh, I mean, man. you're all sore. I had a, uh, an observer with me. Um, you know, at the time we didn't have co-anglers, but we had a, an observer and we got back in and we got to the buoy line and he goes, I will never, ever ride in a boat with you ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I beat him up, you know, getting back in in time. <laughs> Man. So, um, but that, but everything, everything in that format, everything rides on that. You could be, you could have the five winning fish. You show up one minute late. It's like you never even went out there. Correct. Yeah. I think that, um, back in the day, I want to say it was a pound a minute up to mm. a certain amount. If, if you were over five minutes late, then your whole weight was, was, uh, disqualified. But up until that you could be, you know, shoot, if you were 30 seconds late, you, you lost a pound, you know, it's a pound a minute. So, um, you know, fortunately I have not been late. I've been really close a few times, but, uh, you know, with the format we have now, it's nice because, when it's lines out, it's lines out. You know, you get to stop right where you're at. Yeah. You, know, you reel your bait in, you set it on the deck, and you just pull the trolling motor, and you just kind of cruise in at your own pace.
Yeah. Do you have to, when you're doing a run like that one that you just described, do you go through locks? I have. Uh, that one there, we did not, but I have run, you know, a lot of locks. Um, yeah. You know, I've done locks on the White River. Oh, sorry, not the White River. Um, Tennessee River from um, Lake uh, Wheeler, from Lake Wheeler up to Lake Gunnersville. And I want to say that's mm-hmm. a 50, 60 foot elevation change going from the one up to the other one. So it takes a long time. Uh, I also fished in Pittsburgh in the three rivers right there in downtown Pittsburgh. And I think that I was going through four or five locks to get to where I want to go. They were smaller locks, but you still had to go through four or five of them. So yeah. And you just hope that the guy's going to be there. I mean, when we were fishing in Louisiana, we, we had to experience, I mean, I've been through locks. I grew up in Tennessee, so we would go through the locks all the time, but you're not on a schedule. Like you're not, yeah, you know, if you if the guy's not there, you got to wait a few minutes. It's not a big deal if you're just water skiing out for the day or whatever. But if you're if you got the winning fish, and you're you know, and you're going by the minute, and you show up, and there's like a barge going through there or something, that seems like something that could be out of your control. That would be a, a huge stress for me. Like to, it, it to, is, and and you know, with the people uh, listening to this, barges take priority. So if there's a barge that shows up and they want to go through the lock it doesn't matter if you're in a tournament nothing matters except for that lock so if that barge is there you just lost your entire day just based on that one barge being there so it's very risky doing that Hmm. so of the of the three you know uh tours that we talked about different formats different schedules is there one that you feel uh your skill set lends itself to better than than others because when you change the rules of, of anything, I mean, you change the strategy of that tournament. I just wonder how, like in your decision to fish this one, is that because you feel like it your, your skills lend itself better to, to this one? Or is there other reasons why you would pick one over another? Gotcha. So for me, um, I started fishing FLW. That was the first place that I fished and fished the, the national circuit, the FLW Tour. Um, I did that for, I want to say it was close to 10 years. And, you know, the whole time I was there, the names that I grew up, uh, watching, listening to reading about, were all fishing on the Bass Elites. Um, you know, guys like Kevin Van Dam, um, you know, people like that were over on the Bass Elites and I wasn't there and I was, you know, doing well on the FLW side, but I didn't feel like I was fishing against those guys, you know? I always say that to be the best, you have to beat the best. And I just felt like I wasn't fishing against the top tier fishermen. Uh, so because of that, I, you know, tried to qualify for the Bass Elites and I qualified. And then now I started fishing with those guys. Well, during that process, I was invited to do the major league fishing format. It was a brand new format. There's only 24 of us and, and it was a catch weigh and release format and every fish counted and it was kind of changing the bass fishing scene, but they were standalone tournaments. We were only doing two a year. So now I was fishing on the elite side. I was fishing against the guys that, you know, I grew up reading about. And then we were doing the standalone event. Well, they started having a lot of success. So then they started their own format, the Bass Pro Tour. They started their own national league. Well, when they did that, they invited you know, 80 guys from the Bass Elites to go over there and fish the Major League Fishing Bass Pro Tour. So uh, it was a really tough decision. You know, Bass is such a great organization. They uh, 
you know, the Bassmaster Classic. I mean, they really made a lot of careers out there. They're, they're a great organization. And it was, you know, awesome for me to be a part of them. But at the same time, all the guys were leaving. So it was one of those things where, again, I felt like to beat the best, um, to be the best, I had to beat the best. So, um, you know, I kind of, you know, based on, you know, my feeling of who I wanted to compete against, I didn't really have a choice on what I was mm-hmm. going to do. So I went over and, and fished the uh, Bass Pro Tour that was part of Major League Fishing. So it wasn't a format change that that was something that I wanted to do. It was the the anglers that I was fishing against. That's kind of what I did. Now, all the leagues out there, you know, FLW is now under the Major League Fishing umbrella. Uh, mm-hmm. the Bass Pro Tour, you know, Major League Fishing bought FLW. So they have the big five invitationals there's some great fishermen there uh the bass elites are still the bass elites they have some great fishermen over there so right now all the tours out there have the really good fishermen that are you know that are fishing so um i just where i was at at the time it was one of those things where i had to fish against those guys that i always you know read about and watched on tv and i just felt like in order for me to feel like i was at the top of my game i had to be you know fishing against the top of the game yeah for sure well, you've definitely you've definitely found yourself right in the mix there for sure. Um, so I kind of interrupted you a little bit because you were talking about your first first leg is is heading to Florida. So you drive all the way across the 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 country and start fishing in Florida, um, and then like how long does that last? Where do you go from there? And like what is how many days are you spending away from home? You know, usually uh, when I have to drive, it's it's more than 10 days because uh, it takes me three days to get to Florida. Um, so it'll be a good five, six days before I even start fishing, um, you know, prior to that tournament. So I'll drive three, I'll have two to prep and get ready once I get there. And then I'll practice for two days. And then the way our format works is that we have half the field fish one day and the other half fish the other day. So mm. I'll compete one day. I'll have an off day. I'll compete again. And if I advance, then I'll go to that next round. So once I'm at the event, um, I'll be there for 10 days. So, you know, if I'm driving for, you know, three plus the, you know, those 10, you know, I'm gone for essentially two weeks just for that event. And then I'll have a day drive, you know, or a half day drive to get to the next event or wherever I'm going to leave my, my rig, park it fly home so the very first event i'll end up being gone for about you know a little over two weeks you know two and a half weeks just for that one event and then come home and be home for a week 10 days and then fly back fish that event go through that whole 10 day rotation drive to the next event fly home you know so i'll be gone for 10 12 days come home for 10 days, you know, or two weeks, whatever it is, and then fly back and do it all over again. So, um, and how many, how many tournaments will you do that? Uh, this year I have, I'll have 10 tournaments this year. So I'll be gone for, you know, hundred plus days just for, uh, just for the fishing side. Um, then I'll do some shows. Uh, I work the Bassmaster classic for sponsors, uh, going to ICAST this next week. Um, you know, I'll do a few shows here and there in between. So, you know, add on another, say 20, 30 days for that. So, um, I think it works out that I'm gone about 150 days a season, uh, roughly, um, just for fishing. And 
that usually runs from about February until September, October. So from, you know, late January, early February until October, I'll be gone 150 days. Wow. And then when you get back uh, after fishing a tournament and you got 10 days, well, I'll call it rest at home, you probably got 10 days of things that you have to do built up at home and you want to spend time with your family and stuff. Do you, what, what's the deal with, with like how much time are you putting into thinking about that? Are you doing research on the next tournament? Um, you know, on the internet, are you looking at, at aerial photos? Are you looking at catch records? Are you looking at, are you doing any of that stuff or do you just try to spend time with family at that, at that 10 day break? I spend most of the time with my family for sure. Um, you know, I will research a few things here and there, but if it's a lake uh, that I know, if it's a time of year that I know, I'll do less, um, you know, internet research just because I've had the experience. Um, the one thing that I try not to do is get too dead set on what you learn on the internet with stuff because you look at tournament results or you look at past tournaments, you know, you can watch a TV show from a tournament and it has, you know, exactly what guys did there, how they did it, where they did it. It's never the same. You hmm. can't ever go to that stuff. The other problem too is that out of the 80 guys I fish against, I bet you 60 or 70 of the guys watch the same show. So they know exactly what happened and where it happened, the same information you have, but it never goes down the exact same way. So um, I use it as kind of a base model of what to you know, do on my practice out there, but I don't use it as the end all be all of what's going to happen there. So yeah, fishing is, is so diverse and, you know, one, two weeks of different kind of seasonal weather, or different kind of, you know, things that happen out there will change the way these fish act and they're fish. They're not in the same places every time you go yeah. there. You can't just go right to a spot and here they are. You know, to me, it's what happened yesterday happened yesterday. It is not what's happening today, let alone a tournament that you're watching that happened three or four years ago in the same month. You know, it changes completely. So you kind of have to really base everything off of the here and now. So yeah, I try to get information. Um, you know, it's public information because we are not allowed to get any kind of information about a lake. Once they announce the schedule, I can't, you know, I can't call you Tom and say, Hey, you know, I've never fished over here in Louisiana or Florida or whatever, you know, what should I do? I can't do that. Hmm. I can look at public information on the internet you know, or watch a TV show, but I cannot call and get information. Yeah. Do you think that that is respected rule? Not a bit. <laughs> I was going to say at your level, you know, everybody kind of abides by the, by the rules, but that seems like a really hard one because somebody sees your truck out there, you stop it, you stop to get something to eat. They're going to come up. Hey man, you know where you should go is right by the dam. You know, it's always awesome there. And yes. you're like, yeah, I can't, I'm not supposed to listen to this. Like you're yeah. not soliciting that information, but it's being given to you. Yeah. And I would imagine that happens all the time. It does. And, you know, it's like anything in life. I think that the, the people that play by the rules are the ones that are usually the, you know, the ones that aren't doing well, you know, and it's, it, it's unfortunate, you know, it's, you'd like to think that people take things seriously, take the rules seriously. And, uh, they don't, you know, I'd say as a, as a whole, our group is pretty good about it, but we've got, you know, five really, really bad ones that not only is it just 
you know, getting that random information, it's also searching out information, which is against mm. the rules and have failed polygraph tests. You know, we get polygraphed at these events and there's several guys that have failed many polygraphs and guess what? They're still out there fishing. So wow. it's, uh, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is unfortunate because, uh, unfortunately there's money involved and a lot of, uh, ego or, or, um, maybe not ego. There's, I mean, it's, it's a very prestigious thing to be at the top of the bass fishing world. That's, that's yeah. a really, really prestigious thing. And some people would probably do more for that prestige yeah. and reputation than they would even for the money that comes with it. Other people would do it just for the money and they don't care anything about the yeah. prestige, you know? So there's yeah. all kinds of, com of different combinations there. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I always like, you know, when I look at a, a fishing tournament and the rules and things, I always, I, I never understand why there are some rules that are immediately there's a gray area. Like, yeah. like why even have this? Yeah. Because 40% of the people aren't even going to pay attention to it. 40% yeah. of the people are don't even, you know, they think that they're abiding by it, but they're somehow they're not. And 20% of the people are really trying to, to stay, you know, within the rules of the, of the tournament. But I always just kind of thought, man, it'd be better if it was just like, It'd be better for the tournament. It would be better for the anglers if you just made it more of a free for all, like the fewest amount of rules possible. Yeah. Because I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's know, different. I, I, probably. I agree with that. I, I do because the amount of people that are living in that gray area or getting away with stuff. I mean, we look at some of the guys that we have over there right now that, I mean, there's, there's a handful of anglers that have failed numerous polygraph tests nothing is ever done. So all the leagues are doing are enabling those people that like to live in the gray area or live in the black area. It doesn't matter. You know, they're in that area that is considered cheating, but they don't care because they got away with it multiple times. Mm. What's the right. point? What's the point yeah. of having those rules if they're not going to be? I know. Good? Yeah. And if, if it's a really difficult rule to enforce, like you it just certain ones are just really, really difficult to enforce. Mm -hmm. And why have them? I don't know. Then, yeah. then there's other things like one of the things that I noticed. I, I guess there was a tournament or, or a couple of tournaments recently where they're fishing clear water for for look like smallmouth, and they're using basically what we use in the keys to look for lobster as a glass bottom bucket. And, yeah, the flogger. And yeah, the flogger. And so I'm interested in I'm interested in in your opinion of that because it's like with with the super high tech everything's getting more and more and more and more and more high tech and all of a sudden somebody gets an idea that the most low tech thing that may have ever existed is a super advantage and and I'm assuming that it's 100% legal and you can you can absolutely use it and then somebody even came up with a product like the flogger would be they should sell some in Florida because that's how you literally just use a glass bottom bucket and wow. um and look for lobster in the same same way yeah. and um so what what's the what's the thought about the flogger because this year and i'm not i'm you know i'm a bass fishing fan but i'm oh. not like i'm kind of a casual fan i like it i respect it i respect the guys that do it i think it's i think it's a really tough way to make a living and the guys that do really well at it obviously work really really hard at it but then when i see something like that i'm like oh that's new hadn't seen yeah. that maybe it's been around for years i don't know but uh, what's your opinion on that? You know, it, it has been around for a while. Um, you know, to me, it's more specific to smallmouth and spawning. Uh, mm -hmm. That's where it truly shines. Uh, I have one. I bought one. 
I felt like I needed it. Um, I have used it. We had a tournament at the St. Lawrence River a couple years ago that uh, it's current. The, the smallmouth spawn deep. Um, what I used it for is, is if you see a light spot or let's say you found a fish in practice, you have a waypoint there. I use it to where I would lean over. I mean, think about doing, you know, 200 burpees while you are fishing. <laughs> I, you, know, you lean over the deck, you take that flogger, you put it in the water, you're laying on the front deck of the boat, you're looking through this thing. I see that small mouth on that light spot. I stand up, I set it off to the side, and then I cast repeatedly towards that light spot and try and catch it. I know a lot of the guys actually will physically have a rod in their hand be holding the flogger in the other and they're looking in the water and they're fishing like this and they see the fish bite and they set the hook like this. They let go of the flogger. They stand up and they reel that fish in. Mm -hmm. I don't do it that way. I like to look at them, stand up and I make that cast. What do I think about it? I think it's very specific and it's a very small window. It's not something that you're going to just put that in your hand and go out and all of a sudden catch more fish. It's very specific to smallmouth and spawning because they spawn a little bit deeper sometimes. Um, they are not scared. When they get on a bed, they will just sit there. You can get right, right on top of them. They don't care. You can actually catch them multiple times as well because they're just one of those fish that will just, they're so aggressive. They're like a junkyard dog. You know, they will yeah. just sit there and they will attack anything that gets there. So it's very specific. You know, it's such a small little window where it works. If guys want to use it, I'm fine with it. I don't care. You can go out there and catch them different ways. You can do it the way I do it, or you can just look with your eyeballs and see them and catch them that way yeah. too. So, I mean, I think that it would be funny if if that became illegal because it's like the most basic, <laughs> primitive kind of first technology that probably ever exists. That's the that's the first fish finder, right? Like that's the I first know. one, and it would be funny to see people get up in arms and say, no, 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 you can't do that. Like that's, that should be illegal. I just find that kind of funny because it, it's just so primitive compared yeah. to, you know, you got $20,000 worth of electronics right in front of you and that's fine, yeah. but you can't yeah. look in the water for a, for a fish. I didn't know how anybody felt about it, but that, when I first saw that, I was like, man, that is, that is pretty good. And, and really the electronics today with, with the, you know, the active target and all the different ones that are animated and yeah. you can see the fish swimming around I mean, damn, it's almost like looking in, in the flogger. It really is. It is. It is. You know, I, I use Garmin and, and their panoptics is, is so good. I just, I don't see how we ever fished without it, you know, and that's forward facing sonar, seeing the, not only just seeing the fish, just seeing that structure that you're casting to, mm -hmm. you're just so much more efficient on the water. And I mean, I've had yeah. several terms. I have probably one, two tournaments a year where every fish I catch during that tournament, I saw them out there 50 to 80 every single fish and cast to them and catch them. And that's now, what would you, when, when you think about that and you did that two tournaments, um, what would you have done? I mean, obviously, you'd fish those same lakes before you had this technology. And how has the fishing changed or your strategy changed now that you have that and you're using it so much? And you like think back to when you didn't have it and how you're fishing that same lake. What what's changed? Do you use different different lures? Do you use different tactics? Do you you just have more confidence that you know the fish are there, or or what what has changed? Because you caught fish before you had it, yeah. but now you're, you're catching so every fish more, because you have it. 
Yeah, you're just so much more efficient now. You can pull up on a spot, and you know, in the past, you fish a waypoint. You know, you mark a waypoint. That's where you had those bites. That's where you think that school of fish is. You'll fish and fish. Well, they don't bite. You'll leave and go somewhere else and maybe come back and you'll make those same casts and they don't bite. You'll leave and come back again. One time you show up, they are in the exact same spot where you found them. Now, when you pull up, they're not there and you start looking around you'll find out they were only 30, 40 yards away, you know, or they were 30, 40 yards that way. They were a little bit farther away and you can find the fish, you know, catch those fish or hmm. you show up and, I've had it so specific that you do not cast until you see that fish. So now I'm actively looking for one, two, or three fish that I can cast to. Whereas before, you're just blindly casting. And we've mm -hmm. caught them. And you will catch them. You're just more efficient at it now where you can see that actual fish and cast to them. And right. it's, you Man. save time. You catch more fish. Like I said, you're just You can also pretty now. much um, see like the size of the fish that you're looking for, right? Like, I mean, we're in, in Florida, we're using this thing, the, the same technology for, you know, catching bait where we're looking at mullet, we're looking at pilchards, we're looking at, at all kinds of bait fish. We're seeing permit or tarpon or Jack Cravels or snappers, and they're all varying sizes. And we can even make out, well, that's a tarpon right there. You can see it. Now, tarpon is one of the easiest fish probably in the world to mark on this type of uh, technology and see what it is because there's only going to be, I mean, even, but, but sharks, you can see the difference between a shark and a tarpon. Uh, wow. And you can see the difference between a permit and a Jack Cravel. And you can, and, and those are, those are hard fish to tell the difference, but if you're close enough and you're getting a really good mar mark on it, you're really reading it well, you can see the difference between these different fish and you can be like, well, you know, before we were looking at the sonar and there's like a bunch of ropey lines on there and you're thinking, well, that looks like, you know, what I'm looking for. And you fish there yeah. for a while. Maybe you catch what you're looking for. And then that goes into your mind. Okay. Well, that's the mark I'm looking for. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. There could have been a lot of other stuff there and you just ended up catching a tarpon. But in your world, do you pull up to places and be like, well, there's just seems to be just a lot of little fish here. Um, are you getting that good with the, with with the electronics not really um every once in a while i can tell if a fish is a little bit bigger but i can't go well you know i can't look at a school of fish out there or look at a couple of fish and go well, i'm not going to catch that that's only a two-pound <laughs> fish i can't do that you know i look at the marks i throw to the marks and hopefully catch them every once in a while i feel like one is a little bit bigger than another but it'd be an individual one i'll just look uh -huh. at one and go that was a really big fish. And it's almost always the one that doesn't bite. They follow your bait and they act like they're going to bite, but they don't bite. And I go, man, that was a big one. It's the same thing where you throw out and you get a bite and you set the hook and your line breaks. You go, man, that was a big one. It's well, the biggest one ever. <laughs> you know, I've had that happen and go, man, that was a really big one. You'll be sitting there retying. You hear something. There's a little, you know, 12 inch out there jumping, trying to throw your hook. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I can't tell the size on them. Um, every once in a while I can look at a group of fish and the way that they're stacked up or the way that they look, they'll be too bright or they'll be too big, or there'll be something about them that to me, I go, I don't think that's bass. And a lot of times it's a school of catfish or a school mm -hmm. of carp. It's different types of fish. Every once in a while I can tell that, but even then, you know, I see fish, I cast them. And if they don't chase yeah. it, if they don't follow it, they don't do anything, then that's when I go, yeah, I don't think those are bass. 
Yeah. Um, but we had I'm an not experience. good enough to say, you know, I know this. Oh, that's that's a three pounder. That's a five pounder. I need to catch that fish. I can't do that. No. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe you can't do it because the technology is not good enough yet. But I bet I bet it will be. I bet it'll continue oh, to improve, and I bet you'll be able to count the rays on the dorsal fin. You know, and and oh, be, it's 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 really incredible when you get a really good mark on a tarpon. It's like whoa, that bet, looks like probably really shine, so right? picture. I mean, yeah. I mean, you can see the scales. You can see how the, I mean, you can see like the, a scale pattern a little bit and you can see a, wow. a fork tail and you can see, you know, like you can wow. see the difference between a barracuda and a tarpon a hundred percent for sure. Even if they were the same size, because the barracuda tail is going to be kind of squared off and the tarpon tail is going to be very boomerang shaped on the, on the mark and stuff like that. So, um, you know, and also it's, it's the perfect situation because we can actually and a lot of times we can clearly see a dark spot out there in a place where we always catch tarpon. That's exactly what they look like. We know they're tarpon. You can't see yeah. them like individual fish, but you know that's a school of tarpon. So you then you you put it forward and you look at it, and sure enough, you know it's it's fifty. Oh. And sometimes you're, I'm, I'm more more uh, surprised at how few there are or how many there are when I can clearly see them with my eyes, but it's just kind of a faint darkness yeah. out there. And you're thinking, well, that looks like there's 20. And then you put it, put, then you scan them and it's like six. Like, okay, well, I am a fisherman, so I exaggerate <laughs> like crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, all this talk about technology. One of the interesting questions I've asked a bunch of people, and it's cool to hear the different answers. What do you think that the technology, um, and it could be anything, electronics, boat technology, anything. What do you think the technology that has changed your fishing the most, not just fishing or maybe just fishing in, in particular bass fishing or any kind of fishing. Um, I've gotten so many different kinds of answers on this. Is there a technology that you think of that was just really, truly revolutionary? Um, there's several things, um, you know, and they kind of come in waves. Um, I remember I was at a tournament on the West coast and a guy shows up and there's this, you know, rocket launcher looking thing off the back of his boat. Mm -hmm. I go, what is that thing? He goes, that's a shallow water anchor. It's called a power pole. I'm like, well, what is that? And he goes, watch. And he goes and hits a button and it extends out and the spike goes in and he goes, so I can anchor in shallow water with a button. And I'm like, what? And he had one of them, you know, and then he starts seeing everybody running around with one power pole. And the next thing you know, everyone's got two. Cause if you have one, you're only a pivot point where that boat's going to yep. do this. Well, you have two, you're locked into place. So power pole changed the industry with a shallow water anchor. And, you know, to me, that was a huge uh, advantage uh, in fishing. You know, now granted it's shallow water fishing. You know, you have to be in that less than eight foot of water for those things to uh, reach down and, and just, you know, stick on the bottom. You know, they make bigger ones, taller ones you can do. I, I run eight foot blades and, um, you know, if you're in less than eight feet of water, I can stick in place. I have the two. And to me, it's mandatory to have that. So to me, power pole had a huge advancement in that shallow water anchor market. Um, you know, then, uh, Garmin came out with their, uh, pan optics um they i think when it first came out they called it something different i wasn't using their products back then but uh hmm. i can't imagine not having pan optics right now and seeing you know what i'm seeing out there i mean just the efficiency you have of seeing targets to cast to whether it's structure whether it's 
grass edges, you know, grass comes out to a point, you can see that point, you can make your cast specific to that spot and then physically seeing the fish out there as well. So uh, those two things to me were a huge advancement in, uh, you know, in fishing. Yeah. Uh, you know, four stroke Mercury came out with their pro XS, the four stroke. That was a big deal. You know, for a guy like me traveling across the country, you know, I had to put 15, 20 gallons of oil in my truck that I had to stock through the season. And then I would re up during the season because every tournament you'd be putting one, two gallons of oil into that res reservoir for that, yeah. you know, that two stroke engine. And, and even before that, you're mixing. And mixing and, and see, I wasn't, I wasn't doing that back in the day. You know, I never had yeah. to mix the, mix the oil with the gas. I got into it later in the game, but I mean, I can't imagine doing that. I mean, can you, I mean, just think about that, that advancement going to, you mean, I just pour the oil into reservoir now. That's great. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, you pour, I mean, that was a, that was a big deal, like oil injected motors. Yeah. And, and yeah. you got the perfect blend, you know, oh, because yeah. you would always have a heavy, heavy pour. You didn't get enough gas in there or whatever. And it was running a little lean or it's running a little rich and, yeah, and smoke it a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But that was a, that was a big advantage, you know, just, just the oil injection. And now the four stroke yeah. is, yeah. is ridiculous. I mean, yeah, that's, that's think about so that. much nicer. That's where I met you is when we ran to Lake X with Mercury. That's right. And, they didn't tell us why we were there. We all kind of had an idea of why we were there, but we all hopped in buses and we went out to Lake X and we walk out to the water and they basically pulled a boat out of a you know garage that was on the water there and said, eh, here we go. Here's our four stroke pro access. So it was um, incredible too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was really cool to see that. And then so, they've gone even further. I did another event like that and same, same type deal, you know, for these, for these, uh, the, the V 10s now and the V 12. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, I don't know. That's, that's an incredible engine. That's absolutely an incredible engine. Now, what um, are you running on, on your saltwater stuff? Well, we run a lot of different things because we, we have, um, a 16 foot skiff. And so we're running 115 horsepower okay. there. And then we have 24 foot bay boats and we'll either run a 350 or a 400. Um, and the V 10 is what we want to run, but, yeah. It, we don't have it yet. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's coming, but yeah. I'll run any sort of Verado on there that's available and, yeah. and super happy with it. And then on the, on the bigger boats, um, you know, either twin 400s, you know, same, same thing like that. Um, mm -hmm. right now we don't have a 36, but at some point we will have a, you know, sometimes we'll have a triple engine boat, but yeah. we've, we've pretty much, on, on our show, we, we go with a, like the 26 foot yellowfin. And okay. honestly, the way that that Mercury, um, pushes that boat, we feel very confident on a single engine. Yeah. And most people prefer a, a twin, but yeah. we, with the weight that you save, um, uh, we actually run faster than oh, twin right. engine boat. Interesting. I mean, now maybe if they were really pushing it, but I, we had a camera boat that had twins and we had actually had twin Yamahas and we had, we had uh, single mercury and man, just dusted them. Wow. <laughs> you know, that's awesome, they, they couldn't keep up. We kept turning around like, what is going on? Why are y'all, why are y'all slowing down so much? They're like, dude, we're giving it everything we got. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're trying to keep up here, but they, you know, to their, to their credit. And to be fair, they, they had a couple of camera guys in there. So, um, a little heavier probably. Yeah, and that, yeah. and, you know, those camera guys, they bring all that food, all the drinks, there's amazing amount of weight that goes along with all the cameras and the 
snacks that these guys eat all day long. Uh, I don't know if they do that. I don't know if they do that on on the bass because they have to. They can't stop rolling. But when the same guys come and work for us, they uh, they're like, man, this is awesome. We can just eat a sandwich whenever we want to. You guys barely catch anything all day. You hardly even fish. You don't even. We know when you're going to cast because you're like, oh, there's one. There's and one, then yeah. so we we pick it up and start rolling, and we never miss anything. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. That's but for fine. you guys, they have to roll all day, man, they because do. anything could happen. Oh, man, those camera guys, how they do it is, is beyond me. They've got that big camera on their shoulder from start to finish, man. I don't know how they do it. They never stop. I mean, that's, stop. The, that's, that's why the Bass Camera guys are, are a good find for us. If you've got experience with that, we're interested because those guys have a work ethic like – I mean, oh, they, they will go, man, yeah, and they'll take animals. any kind of boat ride. I'm like, listen, you take the nicest, easiest bass boat ride that you've ever had, and this is going to be way better. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we have nicer, bigger boats, that, and we're not in a hurry, and, and we're yeah. not going to try to break anything. So they, yeah. they like going – they usually like going with us. Um, you know, some of the answers I've gotten on the, uh, on, on the technolo- technology that, that uh, really changed fishing for somebody – one one guy, one of the best guys in the in the keys. He 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 said chemically sharpened hooks. I thought that was a really interesting yeah. answer because he he was like, man, we used to just sharpen these hooks, and I remember that we used sharpen hooks, and yeah. then chemically sharp chemically hook. sharpened you hooks, a brand new hook out, brand new, and it wasn't you know it yeah. was kind of sharp you know and you give it a little especially fishing for tarpon and stuff like that and now to pull something right out of your tackle box even that's been sitting there for months. Mm-hmm in the salt water and everything. And it's still like just so sharp that did make a big difference. And then the hook technology got, you know, better. The steel seemed to get better. The hooks not only were sharper, but they were thinner in diameter. Um, all that makes a big difference, you know, and those are, those are things that I don't know when I was looking for that answer, that's not what I expected. And then he went on and on about like how much it had changed his fishing and how he rarely misses a fish anymore. He used to miss them all the time. And it was the hook. Yeah. yeah. I never, I, I didn't think about that. That was, you know, when you asked that question, I wasn't really thinking of something as simple as a, as a hook like that. And yeah, but you're right though with the it, power pole, you know, that was, that was born yeah. right in our, um, in our world. And, uh, John Oliverio, he was fishing the redfish tournaments with us and yeah. he'd have these, 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 um, prototypes on the back of his boat and they were little, I mean, they were very small at yeah. the time. They were really small. But man, the thing about those products is that um, it, you can take, even I am not a great mechanic, but I can take that whole thing apart and put it back together. They can 
coach me through it on the phone at 10 o'clock at night with a flashlight in my teeth and I can, I can get that thing ready and working. And I've only had to do that one time. I mean, it's not like they break down all the time, but if they do break down, you can replace any part of it. It's amazing. Uh, and I think that he wanted that from the very beginning, you know, make it, make it easy. Um, what, before we run out of time, uh, how many miles do you think you put on your truck a year? You know, surprisingly, I don't put as many on my truck as the guys do that live back east because, oh. you know, they'll run. Think about it. If, if a guy lives in Tennessee and he has a tournament in Florida, he'll drive from Tennessee to Florida mm-hmm. and then from Florida back to Tennessee. And then the next event might be in North Carolina. So he'll go from Tennessee to North Carolina, back to Tennessee, and then Tennessee to Alabama, back, you know. So they're doing that back and forth. For me, it's just one to the next, to the next, to the next. So Really, I'm only doing about twenty thousand to twenty five a year. It's pretty hmm. rare for me to get up to twenty five thousand a year, um, but I would say I'm probably around that twenty thousand mark a hmm. year. Yeah, that's not doing. that's not bad at all. I know a fishing guide in Florida that puts a hundred thousand on his truck just, and he stays right in the in the state of Florida, but he Fish fishes all over the place. I mean, wow. he's just all over the place all the time. He's South Florida, North Florida, East Coast, West Coast, all the time, constantly. Wow. Puts almost a hundred thousand miles on his truck. But I was going to ask you about the trailer bearings because, you know, have you ever had problems coming across the country? Never. Had. I have never had a, a problem with my trailer bearings. Um, What's the know, secret to that? Now, well, I think now they're they're so much better. Um, they are. You know, I I started travel when I started traveling fishing cross country. Um, I was in a Ranger boat. Ranger builds their own trailers. Uh, you know, at the time they were building their own trailers right there and flipping. And, uh, I never had an issue. Now I also never had a boat where you had to add grease to the, the trailer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, you know, to the bearings, you know, it used to be in the past where people would mm-hmm. every trip, they grease the bearings. I didn't have to do that. You know, I, I have always run that enclosed bearing that, that Ranger puts on their, uh, their axles. And I, never you know, I've been doing this since Oh five was the first season, uh, that, uh, I started fishing back east. I have yet to have a bearing problem. Well, you probably uh, won't say that. I've not. No, you, you honestly, you probably won't. Uh, it, I mean, it probably would have happened a long time ago. But you're right. That's another innovation that has mm-hmm. has made a huge difference. Is is the yeah. the trailer bearings? I mean, I on the trailer that we have, you don't even have to check them for three years. Like wow. you don't even and have you know to do anything. Helps? What helps us too is that we're only launching in freshwater, you know. So yes. I'm assuming if when you're launching in saltwater, it's got to be a little bit more of a. It probably uh, is, but water's water's water. I mean, when I first started uh, guiding, um, what it was for trout out in in the Rocky Mountains, and man, you had to change the bearings every every summer before you got started, wow. and at the end of the year, you know, you either changed them right at the end of the year, or you knew you were going to change them first thing, you know, before you got them back on the road, and wow. you got water in there, and it was just. Water was water, you know, and yeah, I, yeah. I mean, salt water is definitely worse, <laughs> definitely <laughs> yeah. worse, but, but you know, fresh water's not, not fun too. So, um, let's talk about your diet real quick. What, what, what are you doing special for your diet? You know, for me, um, and, and really it came from listening to uh, Joe Rogan. Um, you know, he had a guy, Paul Saladino on, mm-hmm. um, you know, a couple guys on there about, uh, the carnivore diet and, you know, what happened to me, so I, I'm a, a big mountain biker and, um, well, let's go back to like my normal routine during a season. 
during my off season, I, I would always diet and exercise. I'd go to the gym, you know, five, six days a week uh, to get back into shape. And then the season would start and I would work the entire season getting out of shape. And then <laughs> the off season, I try to get back into shape. And I constantly had this rotation of just getting in shape, getting out of shape, getting in shape, getting out of shape. And uh, at the end of a season, this was back two years ago, I was at a tournament. I crashed on my mountain bike. I, I would take a mountain bike with me. I'd ride at every stop. And it was the very last tournament of the year. Uh, I rode, I crashed, and I jacked myself up. I broke some mm. ribs. I collapsed my lung and had like this hip problem. And uh, that was in October. So I was out for like 10 weeks. I mean, I was wow. on the sofa for 10 weeks, and I just turned into a slob. And the season started and here we are. I didn't have that off season to get back into shape. So I started the season in a bad spot. I mean, I just, I wasn't exercising. It just, it was not a good place. So uh, that next season in May, I finally go, man, I'm going to jump on this carnivore thing. And I did it. And I mean, it changed my life. So I told myself I was going to do it for a month. Uh, I was full carnivore for a month. And then after that, I started doing meat based. So I basically eat meat and fruit and that's it. Uh, I'll do honey. Um, I'll do honey and coffee or I'll do uh, honey. I like, it's actually really good. And this is something that Paul Saladino did is he puts honey on his steaks. So I'll pull <laughs> a ribeye off the grill. I'll put butter on it and I'll put honey on it. And man, it is delicious. So uh, right now I'm meat based. So I eat fruit and I meat, eat, uh, meat and really that's it. That's all. I so eat. if so you've, I if have... you've stuck with that for a while, what, are, there's obviously been some positive, uh, results from that. What, what do you feel like when you're, uh, when you're eating that way? Man, it's nuts. It, uh, I lost about 20 to 25 pounds and my energy level has gone just skyrocketed. Now, it is kind of normalized now. So I was only going to do it for a month and I felt so good at the end of the month. I go, you know, I'm going to do it for another month. Well, I'm about 13, 14 months in now. So I've been doing it for over a year wow. just because I felt so good on it. I didn't want to stop. So, so think about 13 months. I haven't had a piece of bread. I haven't had any sugar, you know, granted I have honey. It's a different kind of sugar. Um, same thing with fruit. It's a different kind of sugar than a refined sugar when you're eating fruit. So, um, I just, I just feel so much better. My energy level is way up and, you know, I just, I like what it's done to uh, my body as well. I mean, I, I lost a bunch of weight, um, you know, and that's just a, that's a big deal. You know, when I was eating like a slob and I wasn't exercising and you know, start exercising and eating like that, it makes a huge difference. Your joint pain goes away. I used to have elbow pain. I had wrist pain. I felt like I was getting arthritis in my fingers as well, you know, just from that repetitive movement. Mm-hmm. And it's all gone away. And wow. you know, that was one thing I wanted to lose a little bit of weight. I wanted my joint pain to go away. And when you start eating like that, you eat that meat-based diet, you start decreasing inflammation in your body and those pains start going away. And I have several friends that I've told about it and they start doing it. And instantly it takes a good 10 days, two weeks of just having a, a, a you know, meat-based only, you know, not even eating fruit or anything, just straight carnivore for two weeks and their pains will go away after about 10 days, two weeks. Wow. And it's, same so, thing. I have friends that they go, well, I'll do it for a month, and they've been doing it for several months now, and they're like, I just feel so good. And my inflammation is down. I've lost weight. I don't have back pain anymore. I don't have shoulder pain. Whatever it is, 
when you decrease that inflammation, those pains start going away. Sure. I've been seeing you getting in the ice bath too. That helps, yeah, yeah, that that too. helps a lot. I mean, it really does. It really, really does help a lot. Do you find it's easier to stay on the, on the carnivore or meat base like you're talking about when you're at home or on the road? Uh, it's actually easier on the road for me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, when you're so busy, it, it, it helps. Um, when I'm at home and I'm walking around the house, like I'm hungry and it, it's harder to kind of stay on that. But when you meal prep, it's great. You know, I'll cook, you know, a couple steaks, I'll cook a bunch of hamburger and then I can eat off of that if I'm, you know, if I can't cook. So it's so easy to just cook that stuff, put it in a container, put it in the fridge. When you get hungry, you want a snack, you pull it out. It's not a calorie restrictive diet. So if I'm hungry, I, I eat. And what's yeah. interesting is I noticed that I've actually start eating less food because you're satiated more now when you're eating the right stuff. You know, when you're eating the wrong things, it actually increases your appetite. Sure it does. You know, diet drinks and sugar, yeah. everything. It makes you eat more than what you normally do. So I feel like I'm eating less now. That's and, it's like uh, the protein test. Some people say is like, if you're really hungry, could you eat like a, a steak right now? Yeah. Uh, I mean, and most people are like, no, I want, I want some chips, you know, I want, I want yeah. this or I want that. And it's like, well, you can have anything, you know, straight protein that you want. I'm yeah. really not that hungry. And it's, yeah. and you're not, you're not really that hungry. You're just not that hungry. It's, it's, it's a funny thing. Um, so when you're doing that, like, and you're, you're on the road, you're practicing for a tournament or you're actually getting ready for a tournament, what are you taking on the boat? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, snacks, everything. What do you take on the boat? Because this is a big question that people, when people are watching their diet, they're like, yeah, I'm doing great right up until the time I go fishing. And then everybody gets a pub sub and, and that's all that's on the boat. And then, you know, I fall off the, I fall off the wagon. So a lot of people ask like, what, what do I take on the boat? And I, I find those, um, those pre hard boiled eggs like yeah. at, at Publix. And I'll just take that bag. You get six eggs right there. And, you know, so I, I'll do that if I don't, cook steak or whatever but i'm interested yeah. to know what you're what you're bringing on the boat um you know for a tournament day or or tournament day might not be a good example i don't know do you eat do you eat much on tournament day i do a little bit but i i eat i eat less on a tournament day than i do uh during practice but yeah it's when you're on the clock i tend to you know i end up eating less um but it's 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 basic it's it's very simple for me and uh man i just, i i can't stress how important it is to eat this way for people and you know it's it's very easy to be to do people say it's so hard to do it's not it's so easy um what i'll do is i'll cook uh so let's say a, a typical practice day for me which is where i'm going to eat more um i will uh start off in the morning i have coffee but i put butter in it and i i shake it up in one of those protein shakers mm -hmm. so i have butter coffee so you're getting fat and I'm getting the energy from the caffeine, uh, but then I'll intermittent fast. So I won't eat until probably anywhere between 10 in the morning or noon. Uh, but having that, you know, I'll do two tablespoons of butter uh, in coffee. It's actually pretty good. It sounds mm -hmm. gross, but it's no, it's, it's good. good. I, I've been drinking that uh, for a long time. Yeah, it's great. So I'll, I'll start with that. And then, uh, you know, the day before I'll cook up, you know, two pounds of ground beef. And I'll cook up maybe two ribeyes and I'll eat off of that for two days. So I'll take a, a probably a pound of ground beef. And after I cook it, I put butter and I put a bunch of salt in there and then a little bit of honey just to get some glucose in there, you know, get some of that 
uh, some carbs in there, a little bit of sugars to give me a little bit more energy. Um, and I'll, I'll have that, the, the ground beef, and then I'll have, you know, some cut up ribeye that I'll have in there. So that's all I'll eat that day is that ribeye and ground beef. And then uh, I'll have a little container of fruit where I'll do blueberries and an apple. So that day I'll have, you know, the butter coffee in the morning, which I'll fast and won't eat until about noon. And then about three, you know, four times that day from noon until let's say seven or eight o'clock at night, seven o'clock, I try not to eat too late. I'll eat off of that ground beef and ribeye and fruit. And that's all I'll have for that day. Hmm. And, you know, it just, there's zero inflammation in there. You know, the fruit's not going to inflame your body. The meat's not going to inflame your body. I'm getting the fat from the, the meat. I also have butter in there to give me some of the fat as well. And I have a little bit of that sugar in there, uh, you know, from the, the honey and, uh, that's all I eat. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause there is something called, um, glucogenesis, I think, where you can actually, your body can make carbohydrates out of protein. Like as you have yes. too much protein to digest, it will convert that into glucose and uh, I think it's called glucogenesis. Um, I just read about that about a day or two ago. That's funny. Yeah, to say that. it's fascinating, really, because I mean, there's lots of people in the world that don't eat much carbohydrates at all. I mean, mm -hmm. they're mostly meat. And yeah. you know, did have you um, like a lot of people that might not be familiar with with that diet plan or whatever? Wow, that's exactly what my doctor has always told me not to eat. Have you done any blood work since you've done this or like, what, what does that look like for you? So, uh, yeah. And, and it's funny. My mom said the same thing. She, my mom's a vegetarian. She freaked out when I told her what I was doing. I mean, like <laughs> literally it was like, oh, she just, her reaction, it was hilarious seeing that she was just like, Oh, you know, she thought I was going to die. Um, and she was so, you know, freaked out about my blood work and, um, so I have actually done, I did my blood work two weeks into doing this. And since then I've done it, I want to say four more times. So I've done five blood works in the last year, which I mean, I don't think I've ever done it prior to that. So, mm -hmm. um, I have been doing my blood work. Uh, my cholesterol has gone down. My body fat has gone down. Um, I actually did, a uh, artery test to see if I had any buildup in my artery. And, and the guy told me, he goes, I, you know, my, my, my cholesterol is still high, but I, that's just the way my family is. We run high, but I've gotten my cholesterol down almost a hundred points, which is a wow. lot when you're talking about cholesterol. Wow. I eat red meat and I eat butter and I eat eggs every day. And my cholesterol has gone down. When it's yeah. bad for you is when you have that mixed diet, when you're eating refined sugars, when you're eating carbs from breads and different things, that's where cholesterol is bad. If you're not exercising, that's where cholesterol is bad. But when you're eating a really clean diet like that, it's different. So my cholesterol has actually gone down. And like I said, I eat butter all the time. I eat red meat every single day in my mm -hmm. cholesterol, my arteries, they did a scan on my arteries and, um, the doctor basically told me that there's no measurable buildup in my artery. So mm -hmm. I don't know what that was before. I don't know if it has gone down, but it is my arteries are not, you know, my cholesterol is high, but my arteries are not, um, you know, I don't have any plaque buildup or anything. Right. In my arteries, so. That's not surprising. Um, 
I, I do blood work twice a year and I have probably for the last 10 years. And, um, over, over the different years, I can look back and see the different diets that I was doing. Um, occasionally I felt like, you know, maybe I'm running a ton and you're going to follow more of a, a, a running based diet where it's a higher carb diet, whatever. That's when my blood work was the worst. And when my blood work was the best is when it's either straight paleo or, yeah. or f low carb, high meat. And yeah. like you, I eat red meat every day. If, if not every day, five days a week. Yeah. I mean, because I like fish too. I mean, I like to eat fish that we catch. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so if I'm not eating red meat, I'm trying to eat fish and, yeah. uh, but you know, a chicken slips in there every now and then. Um, yeah, but for sure. you know, a chicken's got great protein for, for the fat. Um, you know, like if you're, if you're trying to do something and you are watching some of the, the fat intake and you're, you know, like, like you're not obviously not cal not calorie restricted, not, not fat restricted, but mm -hmm. carbohydrate restricted. Yeah, um, sure. and so you really need all the calories that you can get from, from fat as well because of your activity level and everything else. Mm -hmm. And really almost like a keto thing. Like, have you, you, do you, um, do you like Mark's daily apple? Mark, uh, uh, Mark Sisson. Do you know him? I don't know. Uh-uh. You should maybe check him out. He's a California guy too, um, but he was a, a Ironman triathlete, and he was one of the first uh, people to kind of advocate for a meat-based diet or a keto diet for high-level endurance athletes. And he's been on Joe Rogan a bunch of times. He a couple times anyway. And he he's he's a very good interview. He does a really good podcast, and he 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 believes that. Um, that that is the key to unlock all of the next group of world records in, in all endurance events, because he's wow. like, he's like, we've taken the training to the, to the, to the level that there's not going to be anything measurably different about the way that we're training these athletes. We've tried every possible approach to get to where we are today. The only remaining thing is either anabolic steroids or going that route or, yeah. Is there a diet that we could try change? And he's like, if you can get people fat adapted and you can get that, you can get endurance athletes to buy into that. And you already have the, the high level training and the obvious genetics that go with uh, an elite performer. He's like, that's how you're going to, you're going to run a sub two hour marathon. That's how you're going to see these, 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 uh, benchmark times that have never been beat. He's like, that's going to be the wave of the future is that when, or that's what he thinks anyway. And it's step. interesting to, it's interesting to, to think about, but for your own purpose and for the purpose of the audience, uh, better mental clarity, better energy, uh, weight loss, good blood work. Yeah. Seems, seems like a, something that somebody might want to try. I don't know if you've tried a bunch of yeah. things. But. I mean, I, I can't, uh, I can't recommend it enough. I mean, it's, it, it, like I said, it's changed my life. I was going to do it for a month and here I am, you know, over a year later, still, still doing it. And so when you're doing really, that and, yeah. and then I watch your Instagram and stuff. And, and even this morning you said that, uh, you just finished Murph this morning. That's a one mile run, a hundred pull-ups, 200 push-ups, 300 squats, another one mile run. You know, you need some energy for that. So do you feel like you did the diet, you got more energy and it made you want to work out more or, 
where did the exercise, the increased exercise come in in the process here? Where Did it make you feel better so then you exercised, or did you exercise more and that made you want to get the diet, diet tighter, or was it a combination of any of those? It was a combination of both. That's, that's a great question. You know, it's, you know, most people tend to kind of diet and exercise at the same time. And, um, I was still riding my bike a lot prior to, to starting this and I still started doing that. But what I, I did mix in with this diet about the same time as my daily pushups, uh, as well as, as weight training, instead of just doing cardio, you know, riding a bike is, is more a cardio workout. Um, weight training is, is so beneficial for your body. In fact, you, you lose more weight lifting weights than you do by doing your actual cardio. So, um, I mixed in at the same time, but, um, you know, people said that your energy level will go down by not having any carbs, which I kind of believe that's true. But at the same time, it didn't seem like it did a huge difference to me as far as, um, you know, not having carbs in my diet, you know, my, my energy level was so strong that I just felt like, you know, I'd be walking around the house and, and I, I just need to do something, you know, I need to get out and jog for a little bit, or I, I need to do something, you know, you start getting kind of uh, antsy by not doing anything. So I think it was the combination of the both, you know, wanting to, to exercise and then having that energy to do it. You, know, you can take anybody and they go, man, I really need to exercise, but you know, I'm kind of tired. Right. You know, you need that energy level to exercise. Um, and, you know, the pushups for me were a huge deal. I mean, that was just, that was something that I've always heard. I have a, a buddy out here that's a physical therapist that he's a, he's a big weightlifting guy, you know, competed for a long time. And, and he always said, man, do pushups every day. And I never did it, never did it. And then when I started this, I started doing pushups every day. And it was funny because I could do, you know, I'd drop down, I'd do 30 pushups on the first set. And then the next one I'd get to 25 and I'd struggle. And then the next one I'd get to 15. I couldn't even finish 15. And so now I do uh, five sets of 40. That's what I do, you know, nice. basically every day. I've slacked a few times here and there where I'll go a day or two. If I have to get up at five and, you know, be on a plane at six, I will we'll skip that day. But, um, you know, push-ups to me have just helped a ton. And it's a full body. It's not just chest. I mean, you're doing yeah. your, your shoulders, your back, you're doing your arms, you're doing everything. It's just a great way to kind of get your day started. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so two things. At iCast, I have morning workouts. I hope you'll come. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely do push-ups. Okay. Um, so I'll I'll text you where and when. Uh, okay. And then we have the 10,000 push-up challenge every February. So, yeah, let's do it, man. 10,000 push-ups. It's really three. I mean, you're already at 200, so you add, a, add 130 a day or something like that to what yeah. you're currently doing. And, and you'd be surprised at... Like it's, it's one of those things, like what we're talking about is like the diet helped you build momentum on the, on the exercise or vice versa. And it's like, you build this momentum and then you're like, well, shit, I did 300 yesterday. I'm going to do 500 today. Oh, that, I thought I'd be way more sore. Let's try 700. Let's try, you know, whatever. And then, then it's like, okay, let's try to get this thing over as fast as possible. That's what I, that's what I like to do. I like to get it over with as fast as possible, but I do, I, I do enjoy it. I was talking to my father-in-law yesterday. He, he's a, you know, he's fit, he's in great shape. And I was telling him about your dad and about the push-up challenge. And cause he was telling me, he goes, Oh man, he goes, I, you know, I, for a while there, a couple of years ago, I was doing 300 a day and I go, I oh, can see my buddy Tom's dad. Yeah, man. <laughs> he's 85. 
<laughs> 85, he does a 10,000 push-up challenge every year. His push-ups are getting slightly small, shorter in range, but listen, man, care. he's 85, he's dude. I, I tell him, I'm like, listen, the, the best thing you're doing is at your age is getting on the ground and getting back up. The fact that you're doing push-ups, that's all gravy. But I mean, really, like there's a, a significant amount of research that says that your ability to get on the ground and get back up has a direct correlation to the length and quality of your life. And I have heard that. And the other thing is grip strength. Yeah, That's for sure. Part of it as well. that, yeah. Did you read that book outlive yet by Peter? I Tia? No, because he's all about the, it, that book. You'll, you'll, you'll love that. And you'll drive, you'll, you'll make it to about, um, I don't know, maybe Kansas on that book from, from California. Um, <laughs> it's a long book, but Peter Tia, he's, he's really, um, he's yeah. really a great writer, a very, very, very smart guy. And he, yeah. um, that's where he, I heard the grip strength. Yeah, exactly. He, yeah. he, he's, he's got all this correlation between grip strength and, and length and quality of life. And then he has this thing he calls the centurion Olympics, like all of these things that if you want to be able to do these at 80 or a hundred years old, and he kind of winds it back and is like, if you want to be able to uh, play with your grandchildren and get down on the ground at 80 years old, at 40 years old, you need to be able to do 100 burpees in, you know, yeah. eight minutes or something yeah, like yeah. that. And so because you're going to start to lose as you get older. And so to be able to get down on the ground, you know, and get back up at 80, well, yeah. you have to be in much better shape than you are now. And oh, yeah. it's a very interesting book. I really liked it. Um, but I think we're running out of time here. Uh, I really enjoyed having you on, man. And I uh, look forward to seeing you at ICAST. We'll be at the Mercury at PowerPole at Daiwa. I don't know. We probably have other sponsors in, in, uh, in, in uh, common, but um, I'd love to have you come to the workout. Um, it happens early in the morning, right across the street from the convention center usually. And uh, where you'll, you'll be staying at one of the hotels right there. Yep, all these things. Okay, with the rose cool. And all right, well, I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll text you where we're gonna meet, and hopefully you can come one day or all. Oh of them. man, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, Brent, thanks, man. And uh, if people want to follow you, see you how you're doing on the tour, um, go to your website, go to social media. What do they do? Yeah, uh, Instagram and Facebook. I'm more active on those. It's just Brent Ayler Fishing. Last name is E H R L E R. Uh, fishing so Brent Ayler fishing and you know I post almost daily so um, you know I try to keep up and if anyone wants to reach out I try to keep up with private messages as well so if you have a question fishing related or anything just shoot me you shoot me a private message and I'll try my best to respond you have more diet related questions yeah yeah after diet this one. <laughs> <laughs> all right Brent we'll see you uh, next week at iCast and uh, thanks again for coming on man it was great Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm glad we finally did this. Yeah, thank you. All right, see you.